Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We're setting out in our series on the culture of awakening, or Buddhism in society, or the structure of the sasana introduced last week. Today we begin with the Dharma and the way it influences society, but particularly in the way it is carried and shaped by society. With regard to the influences of Dharma on society, we first note that the Dharma is entirely a support for practice, a point I make repeatedly in my talks and writings. Most religions have some form of doctrine or belief system generally providing a metaphysics, an account of the origin of the world, of mankind, or of a particular tribe, and so on. This is marginalized in the Buddha Dharma. Practice, in turn, is actions performed in time and space, that is, in the everyday world and therefore in society. In particular, the Dharma is almost completely about ethics or virtue, and therefore about being harmless and bringing benefit to the world, and in this way is an influence on society. It also stands out in its emphasis on the mind, which is largely a matter of developing virtue or purity of mind as a quality of character, which enhances our ability to engage the world more effectively with a foundation of wisdom, kindness, compassion, and equanimity, as opposed to greed, hatred, and delusion. The mind is tuned, honed, sharpened, tempered, straightened, turned, and distilled into an instrument of virtue, serenity, and wisdom. A particular useful summary begins with elements that are properly practiced in community. The formulation is called the gradual path, which was defined by the Buddha and which I use to provide the structure of my book, Buddhist Life, Buddhist Path. The steps in the gradual path are generosity, virtue, heavens, which is the experience of a special kind of gratification that arises through our own virtue the drawbacks, degradation, and corruption of sensual passions, which is the recognition of an underlying vacuousness, intrinsic and self-centered striving, and the rewards of renunciation. When, from the pursuit of the foregoing, the mind is ready, malleable, free from hindrances, elated and bright, qualities associated with taking refuge, the following should be taken up the Four Noble Truths. The fourth noble truth is the Noble Eightfold Path, the advanced program of training in practice. The Noble Eightfold Path consists of a wisdom section, right view and right resolve, a virtue section, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and a samadhi section, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. 
The path is the purest Buddha Dharma, the primary concern of the Buddhist teachings, to which the individual of high aspiration devotes himself relentlessly. But entering the path has prerequisites, and following the path requires support from society. The individual's motivation and trust in the Dharma are certainly prerequisites for entering the path in the first place. Certain social conditions are required to give rise to the individual's motivation and trust, and to provide the resources and time and training to enable the individual to pursue the path. Buddhist practice begins with benefiting the world in concrete ways, but with progress on the path shifts increasingly toward the development of character, purity of mind, which are spiritual attainments. The ultimate attainment is awakening, the highest attainment of human character, liberation from suffering, liberation from the taints, perfect wisdom, virtue, enlightenment, nirvana, transcendence of the round of rebirths. Most religions define some goal of liberation or salvation and some standard or benchmark by which that goal is attained as a definitive characteristic of the religion. Awakening sets the bar quite high. For Buddhism, liberation is a singular attainment, one fulfilled completely by the Buddha, by the occasional arahant, and by no others. For it entails the total perfection of the human character and is generally assumed to require many lifetimes of effort. In Buddhism, there are four progressive levels of awakening, beginning with stream entry and ending with full awakening, or arahantship. Noble ones are those that have attained at least the first of these. The foregoing gives a good idea of how the Dharma influences society. It produces people of remarkable and progressively growing selflessness and virtue. One becomes a saint long before one becomes fully liberated. Of course, not all those who identify as Buddhists attain high levels of such qualities, for they differ in dedication to practice and opportunity for practice, but many do. And not only the consequences of their good works, but the example they set for others have a civilizing effect on society and bring us in the direction of a culture of awakening. This is how the Dharma, when put into practice, affects society. How then does society affect the Dharma? This will be our main concern in these talks. Society might support the Dharma so that it flourishes and might fail to support the Dharma so that it declines. In these cases, the content of the Dharma is actually remains the same, but people put it into practice in increasing or declining numbers, depending on society. But society also inevitably shapes and reshapes the actual content of the Dharma and sometimes misshapes it so that it loses its effectiveness. In fact, one would expect that such a highly integrated and sophisticated system of teachings, once released into society, would be easily misunderstood and increasingly misunderstood by succeeding generations. Differently in different Buddhist lands, thereby losing its integrity and eventually dissolving 
into the diverse trending cultural influences of the wider societies and be hardly recognizable after a few generations. One of the main points of these talks is to show how the Buddha anticipated this eventuality and what measures he took to ensure that this would not happen. I'll argue that he was wildly successful. If he were not, None of you listeners would be here listening. In fact, I wouldn't be here talking to you. We can easily appreciate the question of the integrity of the Dharma or the efficacy of its practice because it's easy to imagine a time when the Dharma was in a state of pristine purity. This would be the time when its original author, the Buddha, was alive and teaching it to his immediate disciples. And we even have a very clear and confident idea of what it was that the Buddha taught during this period, what has been preserved fairly accurately in the early Buddhist texts, something I've brought up repeatedly in my talks and in my writings. The Buddha did live in a social context himself and borrowed from the various religious influences available in that context, for instance, from the early Upanishads, as he formed his own integrated and sophisticated system of teachings. But his sometimes radical interpretation of these influences is evident throughout. In this sense, he is the single author of the early Dharma. So, one way to approach society's influence on the Dharma is to trace the historical evolution of the Dharma from its original pure and pristine state. Buddhist traditions have developed for centuries or even millennia in quite divergent regions and under quite divergent cultural influences. They have evolved, then crossbred with each other, and with other religious teachings such as Tantric Hinduism, Taoism, an array of regional shamanistic and animistic practices to produce doctrinal variants, sects, innovations, new cultural expressions, and religious hybrids. There are a number of types of changes we can observe in the Dharma. First, elements of the early Dharma might be forgotten. The Buddha predicted that emptiness, for instance, would go by the wayside early on. I think he was right, but it was later recovered. Second, elements might be added. Buddha nature and the divinity of the Buddha in certain regions would be examples. Speculative philosophy, largely absent in early Buddhism, became quite prominent in many later traditions that is, ideas that are intellectually interesting but provide no support for practice. Many enhancements to the Dharma come from other religious traditions. For instance, many ideas from Tantric Hinduism adopted in Tibetan Buddhism. Third, elements of the Dharma might be misinterpreted. This could happen through the loss of the context in which the figurative language in the early teachings, was interpretable, for instance. It could also happen through cultural misappropriation. For instance, nirvana is often understood as a place where one can go after death in many parts of Asia. Fourth, 
Elements can be adapted to regional systems of categorization. For instance, as Buddhism spread to China, Buddhist concepts were commonly translated into Taoist categories, twisting how these concepts were understood. In the West, Buddhist concepts are translated into modern psychology, philosophy, and religion, and thereby acquire many of the attributes of the Western equivalents. Fifth, many elements change their meaning through faulty translation. For instance, Pali Dukkha becomes English suffering, which is not exactly the same thing. Because Buddhism is a practice tradition, a tradition of putting Dharma into actual behavior and thought, practice can act as a corrective to old misunderstandings, and the absence of practice can lead to new misunderstandings. It's important to realize that in general, dharmic evolution does not necessarily mean corruption of the dharma. Some of the culturally inspired adaptations may be necessary for culturally determined people to practice dharma effectively. Many innovations added to the early dharma may be very effective in helping practitioners reach higher attainments. There are many brilliant minds who have contributed to dharmic understanding since the Buddha. Elements of dharma may have been lost or weakened simply because they're redundant in a given culture. For instance, in East Asian Buddhism, ethics seems to have had historically a less prominent place, apparently because of the pervasive influence of Confucianism, which thoroughly ethicizes almost every aspect of behavior. A key question for us is, to what degree has the Dharma been corrupted and degraded, and to what extent has it maintained its integrity or even flourished in content? What is the Dharma's historical track record? Are there reliable sources of authentic Dharma available today upon which we do well to base our practice? Are there other sources that we should avoid? At first glance, it certainly seems that Dharma has mostly just diversified into strange forms. If we walk into temples representative of the various Buddhist lands and Buddhist sects, we are faced with peculiarity and anomaly in the practices and beliefs of the laity the garb of the monastics, the style of liturgy, the presence of unfamiliar figures in temple statuary, unfamiliar rites at temple altars, unknown scriptures on temple bookshelves, and hocus-pocus all around. For many in the West who first come to Buddhism and survey the vast array of traditions with no prior bias toward any particular tradition, the variance is even more striking. Where is the real Dharma? It's easy to see how one might throw one's hands up in despair and perhaps entertain the hope that Baha'i or Sufism is easier to sort out. Moreover, the diverse historical shifts in scriptural corpus is quite striking. There is almost no overlap between the scriptural knowledge of a modern Zen practitioner and a modern Theravada practitioner, for instance. 
Nonetheless, there are core elements of Dharma that shine constantly through the various Buddhist traditions. A Buddhism visible first in the earliest scriptures and a common edifice behind the many often wild and perplexing guises appearing under the name Buddhism. I began today's talk by outlining many key elements of the Dharma, a core that includes, for instance, a more or less common understanding of liberation and of the path of training toward liberation, a path which focuses on virtue, wisdom, and development of mind, and a recognition of greed, hatred, and delusion as the primary qualities of mind to be attenuated. If you question the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, or any Theravada teacher, the tradition I belong to, as representatives of the three primary historically divergent schools, and ask any of them if this describes the core of their understanding of Dharma, I would bet each would say yes. In the midst of change, innovations, cultural adaptations and admixtures and so on, what is truly remarkable is the resilience of the Dharma, its capacity to retain the core principles of the early Dharma, the functional integrity of what is most basic, somehow transmitted through many centuries, through many traditions and cultures, and in spite of the accrued variety, Buddhism has preserved an essential core in most of the traditions. In general, Dharma seems to have a much more consistency of purpose and understanding than, say, the Christian understanding. And in spite of Christianity's more or less agreement on its scriptural foundation, how is this possible? This is what I want to explore in the coming talks.